time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Hey, um, Robert, we're super excited to, to have you on the episode. We, we've talked a bunch about space, but there's still so much to know. And it's great that we have you to kind of demystify and uh, help us really understand where, where it is we're all going. Yeah, exactly. Because if anything, at some point, an asteroid is going to smack us. And, you know, we might end up like the dinosaurs. So if we don't at some <laughs> point uh, do something similar to Elon said, we are going to get hit by an asteroid. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. <laughs> is, is that what, what kind of probability is that i mean uh is uh, that like a once in a ten thousand year probability is that a once in a one thousand year process or once in a 100 year you know what um so recently i started doing a little bit i've never been very i guess political per se but i i started doing some um lobbying for some space um related uh space related activity it's all volunteer just private citizens we're not paid we just essentially make appointments, uh, virtual appointments with congressional staffers. And one of the things that's on the agenda for this year is there's a telescope that they've, uh, an, or uh, a space telescope. It's really not very expensive project. Um, they've, they've um, I think it's like, uh, I think the entire thing over several years is a few hundred million dollars, which is like, you know, the defense department spelled, spends that in, in a few seconds. Okay, yes. Yeah. And okay. Um, essentially, we have a lot of blind spots. There are asteroids that we can't see that could be coming from behind the sun. And, um, and, we, and, and essentially, we could have um, sort of a city, a city si- uh, not a city size, a, a, an asteroid that could destroy a city that we could just basically come out of nowhere with literally a couple, just a couple weeks notice right now. Mm-hmm. And we are um, the proverbially SOL. But if we had, um, you know, better sensors that would be space-based sensors that would be able to give us a heads up, you know, really give us a true fair warning, we could then do something about it. So right now it's just, uh, we just sort of kind of hope and wait but it is possible that it could be two weeks or 2 million years. We don't know, but there are, but there are, I, I think it's, um, don't quote me here, and I'd have to get back to you guys on this, but I think it's like 20,000 objects out there that could really um, cause calamity. And uh, so for a very small investment, uh, from you know, this would be, be U.S. government investments into, uh, um, we could have a telescope that could probably, um, uh, you know, save us down, you know, liter- literally save a, save a city, because we did have that event um, it was, I think, over a decade ago in Russia. It was an airburst, and there were no serious injuries, but it did send people to the hospital, and it really, uh, um, really brought home the point that this could be a very bad day. It could be a very bad day. Chris, I almost imagine you read the notes of actuarial tables um, <laughs> about, you know, likely risk in this world, and that could be so wrong, Chris. But have you read about this in any footnotes on any actuarial tables, or? Do I have wrong what you might come across in a day? No, I um, appreciate the thought. Because, <laughs> you know, we always, in the human mind, want to make sure we have a viable escape hatch. From well, uh, I, I, I have some. Not just imagined, but has some probability. Right. So I, I have some. I have some data because I just pull. I just pull. I'm cheating. I'm pull, pulling up our, our. I found the slide very easily. Uh-huh. So what we call it the Citizen Space Agenda for. 2020. And it's a group of uh, many uh, uh, nonprofit advocacy organizations that came together and then were volunteers that are delivering this message. So there's, so it was, so 2013, the asteroid that struck near, um, uh, my Russian is absent, is Chelyabinsk, Russia, damaged buildings. It collapsed one factory roof, shattered a lot of windows, and sent hundreds of people to the hospital. And we think that there are there's an estimated one million asteroids larger than that one, which was approximately sixty feet across, um, that already crossed the Earth's orbit. And if we do nothing, it's then it's about twenty thousand of these objects will eventually hit the Earth. So twenty thousand out of the million will eventually hit the Earth. We just don't know when. Um, so we have the technical capacity to do something about it. Do we want to? And and, and the the. The project that NASA's called is called just easily enough the Near Earth Objects, or they call them Near Earth Objects. And the telescope out of University of Arizona, JPL, is called the NEO SM. So it's just uh, 
Um, it's a, it's it's about a, I think a three hundred million dollar mission over several you know costed out over several years, mm-hmm. and the objective would be to find um, two thirds of all the objects that are about. Uh, it's about 140, 150 meters across in about five years. So that would cover, they think it would cover about the majority of these, you know, call it city killer um, asteroids. I didn't want to totally focus on that, but hey, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to start the start a podcast, you know? Like, like, survive, right? Live to fight another day. We're, we're not even talking about the pandemic uh, folks and audience. We're now talking about the, the next existential threats. We like to think beyond the norm. Yeah, 2020 is going to throw us more curveballs, it seems. So be ready, people. Yeah, and look, and, and, Elon, and Elon Musk is running towards Mars with, with SpaceX. People don't quite understand the velocity at which he he's doing everything with the singular point of view about going to Mars. And I think that's great, great. And he's really great at raising in almost infinite amounts of money and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and basically being the almost permanent poster child for technology. But he kind of, but, it, but there's a lot more going on in space. And that was a, a point of this uh, recent, of my forthcoming book, Space is Open for Business, that, that the industry and space as a domain is actually much more broad, and, and, and there's a lot more going on than just um, you know a few select people. And then you have on the other side, you've got um, Jeff Bezos, who also has a relatively you know a, a massive war chest, who's basically building up his own version of Boeing, which is basically let's go very slow. And if you look at his crest of Blue Origin, his space company, he literally has two turtles, and he started his space company around the same time as Elon Musk. And I sometimes wonder, like, Jeff, out of all respect, you've got several thousand people working for you, but why are you just kind of trying to duplicate becoming another um, government contractor? Go faster. Do you know something about life extension that we don't? Because we all have about the same, roughly about the same amount of time on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) But how far are we from colonizing Mars? Well, we'll, we'll... well, I know Elon visions by the end of this century, he wants a city of 1 million people. End of the century. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 the, 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 the true Martian experts suggest that we will have boots on the ground in the early 2030s. And that'll be multiple. You know, is it, are we sending a dozen people there for, and essentially it's a two to, th- you know, two to three year type of thing. We're going to bring them back so we can have a big parade for them. But many people want to go there to stay and, you know, stay and die and just have other people there to build up infrastructure. And, you know, one, um, you know, there's one thought, I think it's part of the, um, uh, the um, Robert Zubrin school, which I think um, uh, Elon is, is firmly subscribed to. And, and Robert Zubrin, for some listeners who might not know, is, is a leading Mars advocate. He's been working on this area for decades and has written many books and is, has a group called the Mars Society. And they believe that sort of eventually you're going to have this self-sustaining and economically viable way by, by essentially um, sending IP back or, or creating IP that's going to be useful for the rest of the solar system. And that may or may not be true, but I, I'm, I, I think that, um, that I mean, 1 million people, you know, 70, 80 years from now, I don't know, but who knows? The tech, think that the progress is happening so fast, and Elon is literally building a shipyard with the intention of building thousands of these starships that could carry um, crew and cargo to to Mars. Um, I guess you know maybe, maybe it would be possible, but I think I, I think that at least for the the near term, a lot of the, more, the activity is going to be more on the on the moon. That's probably where we're going to have. That's where that's going. That's like where our, our training wheels are, and and we can do things that are helpful for all the all the activity between the Earth and the Moon. Things that are in situ, actually on the Moon, and um, and who knows? Maybe we'll be able to. Maybe it'll be new products that might get shipped back to the Earth from the Moon. That seems a little bit a little bit more feasible. IP coming from Mars relatively soon. I think in the development of the technology that's definitely already happened. I invested in a company that is. Um, was doing um, essentially doing something that was Mars influenced, but there's no market for Mars. They're doing added. They were doing an additive manufacturing play, and there's additive manufacturing here on the Earth, and so they're using their technology on Earth, although it was initially influenced by Mars. So hopefully, I answered your question, Neil. Robert, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. If if um, bringing Isaac Newton back and <laughs> bringing us back to gravity 
if I think um, about like if we're not going to all be Dennis Tito, you know, the first private space flight, um, and we're not going to colonize Mars, what are the more practical? You talked a little bit about the moon, but what seems to be the most practical um, immediate application that you see in terms of business and uh, a way to keep funding further progress in that space? Well, the, the first low-hanging fruit, which is already happening, is data. I mean, we've been our, – our, the first photo from space, I mean, from a satellite was, uh, I think, 58 or 59. And, and actually, that was fairly new to me. I actually thought it was not until the early 60s, but it was actually the late, late 58. I think it was called the Vanguard. Mm-hmm. And um, so just that having a photo and, and, you know, photos from space, and we've been doing that, you know, they, they call it Earth observation. And, mm-hmm. then, and then now they have radar and they have other equipment. They look now they're looking at um, uh, hyperspectral and looking at other parts of the, 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 uh, the, the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And that data um, is definitely driving a lot of the investments into these uh, satellite plays. Are you know whether they're mon- whether it's um, and, and initially there was well backing up a little bit there was a lot of investments in the hardware everybody wanted to create a constellation and then that got a little bit top heavy and they realized okay how many of these you know constellations can we have like how many photos of the Earth do we possibly possibly need and now um, a lot some of these earlier the the more six I'll say the the, the space companies that are still around and they haven't kind of fizzled yet or run out of money and hitting that chasm of death. They're some of them are kind of re-describing themselves as or relabeling themselves as, oh, we're data companies. We're not space companies. Because like it's just space is just like we just use space, but we're actually data companies. And the really important thing they're trying to say is that we're actually it's putting um, you know, we're creating software that is analyzing and creating new insights that are valuable for markets. Because so ultimately they got to find a way to pay the bills on all this. And so there are groups that want to do asset tracking. They want, or they're selling data to farmers. And there's a lot of really practical and useful things that we're that we're already that we've already been using, and we're just essentially improving on the use cases, doing things faster, better, cheaper. Um, weather, for example, used to be something that governments, especially the United States, would offer to other countries that didn't have their own satellite assets. So our weather satellites are are um, are, are operated by NOAA. And they would use it as a soft form of diplomacy. Pretty smart, you know, give, give away weather, you know, weather data to another country. Well, NOAA has started, um, I think it's like three or four years old, they've started doing small amounts of f- t- pilot studies with commercial weather. Um, essentially, these are startups that are, that are using, um, they're basically using, it's geo-occultation. They're using, they're, they're using an, uh, an improved way to, look at the atmosphere to get weather data. So these aren't necessarily, they're not telescopes. They're, um, they're essentially using, it's kind of like related to GPS. They're kind of using the timing instruments on how they get the, when they're bouncing signals uh, back and forth. So these private weather companies are in these pilot stages offering data to, to NOAA. And it's and, and so far that the, they've been pleased with, with the data that's been coming back. So you might not see, you're not going to see a complete takeover of, you know, privatization of weather data, but you might start seeing other companies that's, that, or, you know, maybe it's agricultural companies or insurance products to say, wow, if I can get a little bit more granular data in this and this and putting together a, just a, a more accurate picture, especially when we have things like climate change, that's really useful. And then the next step up from the data, I, I, I think what we're, we're seeing, and this is still early days, but it's manufacturing in space. And there's already um, some commercial cases where they're now um, on the International Space Station doing some manufacturing, small small scale. Um, They put a 3D printer on there. They've been manufacturing objects on there. They're building- Is there any advantage to manufacturing in space today? Well, yeah. I mean, well, one is if you don't have to, if your feedstock is um, kind of already up there, uh, like just for basic, they like, for example, the astronauts up there, they initially needed like, um, I think it was like a something, just like a basic, not maybe not a screwdriver, but something kind of like that, something in your toolbox. Instead of having a piece of metal, you've got to, you know, they just have the plastic feedstock in which they did. They've actually been able to do some repairs with some of the tools made on it. Really easy because you, because in space, it's really, it's, it's expensive still to take you know um, your consumables or other items up to space 
So one area that's um, a, a couple of areas that are interesting for manufacturing with specific use cases. One is this this product called Z-Bland. It's been around for a while, but it's a, it's a type of um, fiber optic. When when they've made it in microgravity, it has it, it gets a performance characteristic that gets close to the theoretical limit, the the physics limit of of the of the cable of the fiber optic. And it retains that characteristic when they bring it back. There are at least two companies, if not maybe three or four, that want to make this. There's some argument over how big that market is back, but but they say then you could um, you could basically just get you know faster and, and, and less expensive uh, fiber here on Earth. Um, there's some very interesting areas in the biotechnology and pharma areas going on regarding. Um, uh, regenerative medicine, because you're dealing like with the microgravity environments on the space station, they're having success growing organs, and um, so you know using that using that environment when they're when they're building up the structure of the organs, they're doing some work around uh, both making stuff with stem cells, and there's and I just read earlier in the week about another process that they're working on to um, to regenerate organs that are that it's not stem cell based. I didn't get too far into it yet, but but uh, but the uses are intriguing. There's a um, there's an artificial retina project, like eye project, going on right now that they I think they're talking about uh, bringing that back to Earth for use cases, um, and that could be useful for like macular degeneration, um, and then other manufacturing. Um, they they've been working on a, a a new way to deliver cancer drugs using a balloon. And that came through sort of the the, uh, the, the dynamics that happen in, in especially delivering things like fluid um, in a microgravity environment. So basically, you, you know, you put your your medicine in, in a little balloon, and I guess they kind of pop it wherever they're trying to target in the body, and they could use that uh, back on Earth. Um, so so think about take so so you start with data, which is like bits, and then we're kind of moving up to atoms, and I think the atoms are going to get really interesting. They're they're all they're they're working on a, a new type of um, semiconductor uh, development, and imagine if you were an environment like in space where you don't need you know you don't need water to to, to or it, where some of the cooling issues and other issues that you would need in a large um, semiconductor plant. If you kind of if you eventually could put that industry in space, which is really the vision of what people like Jeff Bezos believe in, taking the dirtier industry off planet um you get into just a whole new paradigm and 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 things are happening rapidly you know might not see it today it might not be next year but there are these pilot projects they're already bringing back to earth and looking at ways to um to to commercialize and spin these things off so these things are are good for the economy they're good for just society and um, and and then there, and there's going to be and I and I am very confident there's going to be these sort of um, unpredictable um, applications that are going to come out from all this. I mean, who would have ever predicted? Uh, I mean, maybe a few science fiction authors, but who would have ever predicted like the you know kind of the FaceTime, you know, Uber and all these use cases back in the early '90s when Internet 1.1 well, no, was developing? Yes, science fiction authors had pretty good feed on this. But I think a lot of other people would not have necessarily guessed all the applications that we've been the beneficiaries of. It's interesting, you know, um, Chris and I talk a lot about failure of imagination and mine is terrible right now as I'm trying to think of some of the good use cases. I, you know, I, I, I wonder even, you know, um, like I said, I'm about 50 pages from done with your book. Um, I wonder a lot about what the first major industries are going to be other than, you know, internet providers or, um, would, would I, would I kind of see as the westernization of the rest of the, the, the dark world for lack of internet as I'll call it. So you're speaking, um, so you're speaking about these satellites that are providing internet service. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. 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 For context, for some people that don't know there, and there's been different projects. This goes back to even the nineties Bill Bill Gates was involved with, um, I think it was Teledesic and, and there's been a number of companies mm-hmm. and uh, they had huge capexes and it was, I, I think yeah. great ideas, but maybe, um, if just the wrong time, just wrong time. Maybe I think timing was a big part of it. But what's always interesting is, like, currently back in 2020, we've had a, we had a failure this year or a bankruptcy. OneWeb, 
which is a U.S. company that had a lot of high-profile investors, including, I think, Coca-Cola, uh, Richard Branson, um, or Virgin Group. I mean, just a lot of, it's very kind of a multinational effort. And the idea was where they're going to put up a, these lower Earth constellation satellites, bring high-speed internet access to the rest of the world, and, you know, whether it's developing countries, rural parts of the Americas, there's, um, and provide um, internet access. And they had a, they had a BK. And they are resolving it with, very interestingly, um, United Kingdom, uh, the British government, and um, an Indian telecom company, and a few other, I think, minor investors are acquiring the assets. Which, um, you know, there's debate on whether government should be becoming venture capitalists, but that's what's happening. And then you've got um, uh, Elon Musk's spinoff, which is still part of SpaceX, called Starlink, which is also doing the same thing, which they've said they intend to spin off. To, uh, to, so I think we have an IPO. And you have Jeff Bezos also wanting to do something through Amazon. I think he's calling it Kaipura or Kaipur. Um, so yeah, maybe that's kind of like the first big business to consumer market, bringing, mm-hmm. bringing these data services to the rest. But there is, you know, these other um, tangential plays, you know, the, the data plays, the manufacturing plays. And haven't even we haven't talked about the the kind of the human participation of people having human space flight through suborbital, which has been a very long uh, development path, and it, that which is still ongoing and is not yet complete. And you have um, the orbital, which um, we're starting to see a, a kind of a nice ending with with the uh, two NASA astronauts coming back just a couple of weeks ago um, via a SpaceX uh, rocket or, or capsule. Mm-hmm. Robert, on the economics of the low Earth orbiting satellites, how how many of those are required to finally link us all together in terms of uh, giving internet access to people in uh, areas? You broke up just a little bit, but Chris, yeah, was Chris, ha- your internet wasn't great there. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> I was asking um, what is required in terms of the number of Leos, low Earth orbiting satellites, to connect us all. I mean, how they're, they're talking. I think they're talking about some of these constellations, 10,000, I mean, thousands, 10,000 plus. So it brings up a whole other issue of um, potential space debris issues, which is, um, which is, which is, um, it's, that is not maybe the a critical issue today, but it is going to be because just about every few years there becomes a little incident and, um, you know, they're supposed to, we, we need better housekeeping, we need better you know, self-regulation. Um, the industry is trying to do that, where they they um, you know they have a kind of end of life. So if they have like if you have a big te- if you have like say your um, direct TV satellite that sits out in you know say ten thousand miles away from Earth, and it's just say pointing say at Africa or Europe. When it's at its end of life, it's got it's got propulsion, it's got gas. It essentially moves to kind of a, um, a, a, a graveyard orbit that's not as desirable. These lower Earth satellites, they're um, they are constantly sort of in free fall and they have, uh, they might be up there a year. They might be up for a couple years. They're intended to essentially fall and, um, and, and burn and essentially burn up or be replaced. So we might get to a place where, you know, these, these satellites might be maybe not as, they're not as inexpensive as an iPhone, but it's a little bit more replaceable. So, you know, after one year, you know, you've got your 1.0 model and 2.0 is out, you know, you allow 1.0 to, to sort of burn up in the atmosphere and you put up the 2.0 version, which is a whole lot better. Um, but there needs to be better planning both within the industry and just the world globally that we take care of this area because the actual um, the physical proximity around Earth, low Earth orbit, you know, up to about you know, a couple thousand miles in altitude it is it is a, a kind of a limited resource. There's only so much of the three dimensions that one can use. So if we have, um, we already have thousands of small, tiny objects that are traveling at many thousands of miles an hour. And if one collides with a person or, or another satellite, that's that's a that's a bad day. Uh oh, guys, did I you there? Yeah, I was going okay. to say that's most assuredly a bad day, Robert. Yeah. 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 Um, and so aside from communications, what excites you the most about uh, the world of space opening up, Robert? What things do you find most thrilling? Uh, well, I think an area that 
probably enticed most of us probably as children. And it was kind of an area I sort of abandoned for a little while was human space flight. Mm. Um, I think it's a longer, longer road, you know, where humans are soft, we're squishy, we're fragile. Um, you know, we, we have bad moods. So right for, for a little while, you know, professional astronauts and national astronauts are definitely still, still needed. But as the, um, lower as lower earth orbit becomes more accessible i think being able to visit space and i really want to go to to the moon one day because it seems like a, just to be able to go back and you know to to just experience another planetary body would just be amazing and and um my my i i, I recently with with the pandemic connected with um a, a well-known space author and philosopher named frank frank white Mm -hmm. Frank White wrote a beautiful book called The Overview Effect, and he's written and he's and he's written other books, but The Overview Effect is what he's most well known for. The Overview Effect is talks about how almost every almost every astronaut and cosmonaut or tycoonaut who's been to space who has seen the Earth from space without you know there's no boundaries, there's no labels, mm -hmm. has some type of profound psych. It's a psychological. Uh, state that they feel some of them said had said it moves them to tears and and they try and many of them have tried to bring that bring that quality back and they said it has inspired the rest of their life and frank and i've gotten to know frank um for the past five several months since the pandemic started and he um it has just really him through his work and aggregating these other thoughts from these other um, you know, visitors to space, and some have been residents in space who've lived on this on, on space stations. Um, there's just there's something special about that experience, and then I think if we brought that to more people, it could really be profoundly changed. Like I, I noticed, um, I think it, I don't, one of you had been to, or, or one of, it sounds like one of you, you guys are, are Vipassana meditators. I'm a meditator as yeah. well. It would be, yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. Both of us are meditators. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, it, I mean, imagine being able to just be able to have experience just to be able to, to float and, and just be in that, in that state of awareness. And I've learned recently that there are, that the closest thing that apparently we can experience to being in space but on Earth is through flotation tanks. The sensory deprivation tanks, yes. Yeah. And I've heard that. I've floated a bunch, and Chris has definitely tried it a bunch of times. Yeah. Same here. I'm not, I haven't floated at all in 2020, but I'm going for one tomorrow. I'm very excited to kind of get back into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, there's a, like, okay, so there's a startup that I'm very excited about, and I have right now I have no vested interest, so there's no like little plug here, but they're, they're called Space VR. And they originally wanted to put um, they wanted to put VR cameras on the space station, and then they wanted to put them on a satellite, and then kind of like beam this back to Earth. And and their model changed quite a bit. And then somebody, uh, an astronaut, it was Nicole Stott, who is a, a NASA a retired NASA astronaut, and she's also a, a professional artist and educator. Uh, she said you should combine VR and floating. So space VR has, has a, a, essentially a water resistant or waterproof VR headset. They're taking, I think, public, essentially public domain, um, high quality satellite videography. And they're creating an experience that I think they have like over, about 20 centers that have the experience around the world. This is not just something that's US centric. You can go to places around the world. And you get to go not a whole rotation and a whole orbit around the earth, but you get about, a, you know, the floats about 45 minutes. So you get, um, you get to, I think, see like one or two sunrises and, and you see the earth floating for those who've not experienced floating, you know, you're in this <laughs> water, a lot of salt, it's very warm yeah. and you just, you, you feel that you miss, you start missing the edges of your, your body. Is that correct? Is that pretty accurate? It's yeah. like you you're in a shallow, a shallow pool that's a uh, body temperature. And so um, it is like being weightless and um, without your normal sensory input. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, so I'm looking forward to trying and having this overview, hopefully feeling, I guess it's a simulated overview effect um, I'll be curious to see what astronauts think who who get to try both. Mm. But I think if they can provide this to a lot of people, that'll might be a good way to you know whether it's 
creating more empathy between us, better communication. Because I think space is not just a, a domain, but it is an enabler. So what really excites me is, is just space, space as this enabler for, um, to do commerce, you know, to have fun, to explore, to create, to manufacture. Um, uh, you know, for example, we're so short-sighted you know, in the West, you know, we can barely think of things in quarters, you know, now it's just like, <laughs> barely, it used to be like quarterly results. No, no, like, I mean, Chris was explaining to me the, uh, the chairman of the Fed used to speak and it would affect the market for, you know, quarters. Now it affects the market for minutes, right? Like, oh, but now yeah. they all speak eight, eight every day. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, I mean, LIBOR and things like that are probably going away, you know, sort of, you know, we just have, we live in this, this new, new world. Well, China. Um, well, in China, they like to think things very long term. And I and I was going. Well, why? I've never been to China, but I'm thinking. Okay, why? And I was looking at their govern governance, and you know, we're essentially run by lawyers, mm -hmm. and they are run by engineers. And I don't want to say it's good or bad. It's just it's a different quality and a different result. They just have a different way of creating things in outlook. And there was a film that came out last year i think it was it came out i think february around february 2019 called the wandering earth it's now available on netflix i i recommend people watching it it's a completely preposterous film and the content the premise, <laughs> the premise is that in like say in 2300 or 2400 sometime a few hundred years from now uh -huh. the earth no the our sun goes supernova uh -huh. And it's going to destroy, you know, it's going to, you know, it's going to consume the entire solar system. Well, what, what is, what is earth? What does humanity decide to do? We're going to move the earth. We're going to literally put thrusters around the equator and move the earth. It's kind of like Armageddon meets 2000. It's a mashup of Armageddon meets 2001. Wow. If you believe it. it is so over the top. If too bad, you can't really see in the big screen right now, unless you've just got a really big screen, hundred inch screen at home would do fine, but, or 75, but, um, but we saw it in but but we saw it in a movie theater, and a friend of mine um, who's in, who's who contributed um, to the culture section of my book named Adi Adi, he he tracks what's going on in popular culture in Asia, and he said he called me up and he said Robert you got to see this film like today I'm like well I said it's a Chinese film where do I see it so we we drove out to uh, um, the San Gabriel Valley which uh, Chris knows well yeah. and had some good Chinese food and went to the local AMC, which is owned by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I, I was the only white guy in the theater and um, watched um, uh, the, the Wandering Earth. Now, what's fascinating about this film is it was just a regular big, it was a big, you know, uh, a high concept action film. Um, but I guess after it was somehow in the time of its production, in the middle of it, the Chinese government invested in the film. And they, I guess they wanted to improve some of the special effects. And they saw, they, they kind of understood the message of the film because the, the story that the film is based on is based on a very popular science fiction uh, story by a very pop. He's kind of like the Asimov of China. Yeah, the three body problem. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So they, so the Chinese government invests in the film. And when you watch the film at the very beginning, you see a little, you see a, an icon of essentially the, the Chinese government media group or, or whatever they have, the propaganda group that invested in this. Yes, yes. And it is a they, propaganda group. That's a good and, they, and they basically, the, 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 there were sort of kind of, there were several messages, but the key one that resonated with me was that China is a spacefaring nation. They're going to space and they're thinking long term. Yeah, well, 2% of their GDP or something, right? Versus a quarter percent or what, what's, yeah, it's a I large mean, number. Um, I mean, they're not spending, I think, as much as like the U.S. I mean, the U.S. right now, NASA was like 19 billion. But if you count the military, it's a much, much higher number. You know, the, the military spends. Oh, is China US. not spending more than us? I don't know that number. We'd have to get back on, on the Chinese on the Chinese numbers. Mm -hmm. But essentially, they they are going kind of all in. They want to be a spacefaring nation. They know that it's the high ground. They want to do important things on the moon and the rest of the solar system. They're thinking long term and they don't think in quarters. They don't think in terms of presidencies. They think in terms of like hundreds of years. And well, that is just that's how they that's how they're going to operate. And I and it, and people can dismiss it. But when um, I, I know someone, um, I don't know if I should feel like saying his name because he's uh, in government, but uh, 
he's someone who, who's an expert that tracks China. Mm-hmm. And he said, China doesn't really know right now what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're kind of doing a lot in the world. You know, they've got these infrastructure projects. They've just got a lot of projects going on. But when they, when they focus just a little more, he said, it's going to be very, very scary for like the West. And space is part of it. And, and, and the thing that's kind of a little bit concerning about uh, China, which the U.S. has been trying to get them to do, but it's been difficult, is China does everything in terms of dual use. They look at does this have a, does what does this application have a potential defense um, military, and they look at almost everything in terms of, in, in that nature. Does it have dual use? Mm-hmm. So it's um, you well, know, Robert. Think- of course, they can think long term because they're not at the whim of the electorate. And it is, you know, a fairly autocratic system. But uh, uh, c- correct, it's just a different way of doing it. I'm not advocating for it, but uh, but uh, <laughs> that's good because your congressional lobbying won't go well if you. No, no, no. I just think that I think part of like being aware is just being aware of, of just the differences, mm-hmm. and and maybe there are things that we can we could borrow from them in terms of some long term thinking because we could have a change in. And presidency in November that could say, hey, we don't want to go back to the moon. We want to go back uh, to the previous administration where, where Obama was very focused on. He wanted to do this asteroid visit mission. Mm-hmm. And then Trump came power and said, no, we're kind of like more interested in doing like kind of moon and Mars. These are all things that are different, but it, it's it makes it difficult with the starting and stopping of, of large programs. Um, I was asked I was asked just um, recently I was asked twice on on, on a um, a very conservative radio, a very conservative radio show host, where he said his list, where, where he said his listeners asked, he said, "Hey, we're you know dealing with unemployment. I'm feeling, you know, listeners are feeling real pain today, um, in in summer 2020 with with this with the economic strife, social strife, pandemic. How does right now a new NASA mission going to Mars help me?" And you know, these missions are, first of all, planned out way before the pandemic. It's not like mm-hmm. NASA says, hey, let's launch during a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. These are multi-year. They take a lot of planning. But every one of these missions always has spinoff technologies that end up, um, as they're developing the project before it, before it launches, you know, um, coming back and turning return on earth and all the money is spent essentially spent locally, unless they've got like other partners that are like, say from European space agency, but let's just say it's a purely hundred percent pure domestic program. There's no banking in space right now. There's no ATM in space. The money is, <laughs> it, Richard Branson. Yeah. I mean, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I mean, but the money is spent um, on contractors and subcontractors right? and it, it is kept locally. So I, I think that needs to be, um, kind of kept, you know, minded. Wait, Robert, shift gears on the, you know, I'm super curious about this. Um, I I play a VC by day and, you know, a a superhero by night. I'm I'm, uh, Robin to Chris's Batman. Uh Um, We try not to declare that too often. But, you know, I'm really curious as I'm looking at some of these investments I've heard of from the Space Angels, which I know you were uh, one of the original members of, and you're tracking, obviously, this industry very well. Um, you know, I, I, I saw the, from, from a couple different angles, uh, the SpaceX launch a, a yet another round. Have any of these space companies had a return yet? Great question. There was an article today that I've not yet read, but I think it's in Space News. So Space News is listening there. You know, you get a little shameless plug. But I was talking about that with actually the founder of with the original co-founder of Space Angel Network this morning, Guillermo Sunline. Uh, we were talking about the the um, it hasn't had the exits. Look, look, like it was it was sort of a, a, a convenient, nice to have having uh, Virgin Galactic with this. Uh, was it a reverse merger? Of, a SPAC, uh, yeah, a SPAC, a SPAC. right? <laughs> that, and and it was you know it gives some liquidity to people like France and stuff, and it's very it's highly traded and. And maybe people are having a lot of fun hobby, but going back, let's, I don't want to pick on Virgin Galactic, but they've had a very long development road and they still aren't operational. It's very expensive what they're doing and it's very difficult. Um, and, um, and I think 
the, the, the investors and the people trading the stock of which I, I'm not, I, I have no shares, no position in Virgin Galactic, it's, hold, it's holding company. Um, I, and I am, I, I question some of the fundamentals. I think that it's, it's just very difficult. Um, and, you know, you know and, hope, and do you, hopefully do they you will. Think, do yeah. you think we'll see a return anytime in the next 10 years? At their current pace? No, no, not, not Virgin Atlantic, oh. just in general. Oh, in general. Start yeah, seeing... possible. Absolutely. So, look, there are other companies that are, there are other examples. Um, things like um, the Climate Corporation, or it's called, they were called Climate Corp, but it was like Climate Corporation. They were using data from space. They were sold for close to a billion dollars to Monsanto. Um, you have a, a smaller company called Made in. That doesn't make me sleep better at night. Yeah, no, no, but no, no, no. But okay, and, and look, that's a very, it's a very divisive um, company. But there is, um, there's a medium piece from the founder about his sale to it, and I would urge people who who feel strongly one way or the other, usually it's the other. Um, it, it re, now, granted, the the founder made probably lots of, you know, got a, got a lot of money. But it's worth reading about his story. It's a, it's a medium article on it, 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 it. He was like he was like a big green. He was like about as left as you get. You know, I mean. Um, now, granted, you know, my, until that check came from with that So, I'll vote Republican next election. Just give me more money. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there. So there's a, another company called Made in Space. And um, Made in Space was is also one of the is a manufacturing company. They put this three um, D printer um, on um, on the ISS, and they were recently acquired by um, a private equity group um, out of Florida. And I and I and I forget their name, but it's it's called like Red Red something, not Red Door, but mm. they're out of like Boca, and and they're they're trying to you know there's a lot of interest right now in doing roll ups. So I think for investors. Who were looking for, you know, rolling up several companies? It's possible they're just probably not going to see the EBITDA that it, that that other companies have. You know, some of these one of the things I one of the things I wondered. Um, and sorry to to yeah, no take you off on that, but I'm I'm just curious. One of the things I was supposing with with Chris on a couple episodes ago was maybe the first trillionaire was going to come from mining, you know, asteroids for rare earth minerals. Is that something you think is likely? Or is that just science fiction? Neil Modi said, "No, it, no, it, astero- using asteroids, yes, because it's like it's a material we can, you know, we're, some of them will have useful metals." But okay, I'm not an economist, but let's just for a moment, if we say that, like, you know, we're gonna bring this, if we could relatively inexpensively bring all this platinum back, isn't that just gonna kind of crash the the terrestrial market if we can actually bring it back to Earth and? De- press the pr- price. I don't suppose you'd tell everybody if you were able to do it. Yeah. And- so surprise. So, so there's a, there's a book, um, uh, called what is, uh, and I'm just, um, what is this book? It's called, um, Delta. It's called Delta V and it's, it's a fun science fiction read. It's near, it's kind of like near term hard science fiction. And it talks about it's, I don't want to give too much away. It's a fun, easy, fun read, and it's about astro. It's about a kind of a competitive way of who's going to be first to getting to space. And I mean, to an asteroid. And surprise is, or, or the element of surprise is, is definitely a part of it. I think asteroid mining is for real. There's use cases in space first before bringing the materials back to Earth. I don't know the timing. You know, we had a couple. We had a handful of companies that had tried it. It was a little too soon, but some of them did develop some IP that's still in use today. They're, maybe the companies aren't actively asteroid mining, but they but the IP they developed is being used used in space. And I think it's 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 inevitable. It's not if; it's a matter of when. Um, well, Robert, it it costs what between three billion and ten billion. Let's go take the middle road to to build a, an operating mine in the U.S. How much does it cost to fly up into space? Forgetting well, I mean, the building of a mine or whatever. Well, okay. Well, you're, you're. I mean, this is what like people like you know Bezos and Elon are trying to reduce the access of. So we're talking about um, like right now the price. Let's just take the moon because that's like a body. Right now, the it's the commercial companies are asking right around 
800 to a little over a million dollars for um one for one kilogram to to to, mm-hmm. to get all in one kilogram to move and to get to like lower earth orbit that's a, like, that's a round can, trip ticket i hope right no that's not a round trip that's one way so and you can get like if you have um a small satellite there's these essentially they're almost like student projects but like you could do you could work on on a weekend you can now like get something to space for like a little more than 10 grand, say, say, say 15 grand, 12 to 15,000, wow. very, very small. I mean, you're, you're talking like in your hand, it's very limited in terms of functionality, but getting that to space. But you know, w- w- the big game changer for that access point is like Starship, this, this large um, vehicle that Elon's building in uh, Boca Chica. Um, if you can then start taking ton, like you're, you're thinking about things in tons, not just grams or kilo, like yeah. kilograms. Um, some of the some of the um, hardcore look. I'm not a I'm not an aerospace engineer, but some of the engineers I respect have said, look, they don't even know. Like after you, you know, you take like say a hundred. You know, you you fly like Elon wants to fly multiple times a day, and you fly a hundred of these things or a thousand of these these. You kind of we could essentially do every project. That's like on every, you know, every country's um, manifest. Then you're like, okay, then what? Okay, we've just taken up like six space stations. Then what? You know, we've just, you know, then you start thinking about all the crazy, not crazy, but sort of like the other applications, you know, building factories in space. But I'll get back to you on some of like some of the um, uh, other, other com- um, I guess, exits. There was like a mapping company that Apple acquired um, there was a, a satellite company out of Scotland that, that, uh, called Clyde Space. They were acquired, um, and also in kind of M and A activity. So you're so space, so new space, which is these smaller startups, and includes some of the the large fun ones funded by like these kind of the super super angels. You're going to see more of like this uh, M&A activity where other companies are, are acquiring other ones, or they just want the tech, and or the other one runs out of steam, or they're acquired by um, you know small private equity so, groups. You know, jumping back to the first part of or to the second part of the question, it, it sounds like it's you know mining in space is very much like being a pirate, you know, uh, a thousand years ago or something like that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> a years ago. In what way, Neil Modi? Well, because because uh, you know it, it's a lot of still unknown. First of all, right? Uh-huh. I think sailing the seven seas was a whatever it was a very unknown, and um, you're treasure hunting in some real way, right? So yes, he's going to go pick up uh, an you know an asteroid. He's going to bring it back. It sounds like, and then mine it when it's on on the ground. Right. right. And then he's got to be careful. I guess that's a little different because, you know, it, it's a pirate meets a, a great arbitrager. Right. Because then he needs to make sure he doesn't flood the market. Yeah. Um, like, um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, 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 right? I mean, these are very these are these are kind of strange things to put together. Yeah but, I, yeah. but I still wonder. Right. You know, is there is there rare earth minerals that are, are worth mining? You know, if we're willing to go to the bottom of the ocean at crazy costs, mm-hmm. are we willing to go to space, well, right? Well, and are, are the prices going to be driven up exponentially over the next 50 years for some of these things that make it like, okay, maybe in your lifetime, Chris, we'll see somebody actually become a trillionaire just on space mining. Well, I mean, I hear that there is a, um, a grassroots movement to getting some of the top users of um, rare earth minerals to... to effectively say they will not mine the seafloor or do it in a more friendly way. That's not working out super well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Neil, we've already had trillionaires. They're just uh, all in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> We've already seen our first trillionaire. I think you gave me a trillion, right? From Zimbabwe I, at one point? I, I was a hundred trillion. Don't you? But speaking of Africa, um, in um, the science fiction writer, um, Andy, uh, and, Andy, Andy, um, Andrew Weir, who wrote The Martian, his second book, Artemis, he, he he kind of bases he, it's based on like this colony or not colony the settlement this mm-hmm. you know city on the moon and he has a lot of comparisons to kind of africa and it's it's maybe sort of like you know the um 
you know, young population, high growth, you know, there was a uh, you know, lack of some infrastructure, but things like, you know, in Africa or India, like, you know, cell phone adoption proliferated. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he tries to make this, um, you know, this point about that, you know, I think he's trying to tell us that maybe even Africa at some point could be a, a potential space hub of activity um, at some point that they're going to, because there, there, there's a lot of interest actually in Africa. They might not be able to build an indigenous rocket system that's like, you know, on the scale that Elon's doing. Mm-hmm. But if Elon's going to bring the price down and provide others access to it, I, you know, I don't Then I inevitably don't, the Chinese government will lend them more money to build this too. That's, yeah. And well, right. I, I wonder how that's going to end up happening, working out with like these port deals in China, you know, or not China in Africa and other places, you know, where they, or, or highways when, when eventually they have to pay. It's like, you know, having, you know, interest only, you know, for on your house. Uh, yeah. And, China's right. getting a lot of pushback on those. Uh, yeah. But how are you going to, how are you going to collect? You're going to what? You're going to go, go to war with somebody who's got no, anything other than materials that you can mine. I don't know. It's a strange thing. Yeah. <laughs> It was a kind of rent-to-own <laughs> system foisted on a lot of third uh, developing nations, right? Yeah. Um, and there's some I've, groups that are trying that are actually uh, trying to do this with satellites, su- suggesting that you could rent time on a satellite. Like, hey, but we'll what, have- would I, what would Chris and I rent time on a satellite for? Let's just say we were willing to put up the money. What would it help us? I, I guess Chris could track, you know, movement of a few more companies, but I guess he can do that. What else? What else would he? What else would we want to rent a satellite for? Even just curiosity, what would be the interesting thing about it? The ultimate prank for your friend across the country. Like, I know exactly what you're doing in the pool right now. No. Have you seen that Tom Clancy film with the assassination? Well, you know, well, Mr. Limited Partner, you know. <laughs> no, I... Wow, no. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think if you're a, um, I, th- I think if you were doing, let's just say a, um, let's just say putting your, your VC hat on, if you had, um, you know, you had a, you know, you're maybe you're doing diligence on a, on something that's remote, and you need some, you know, you want some third party verification data. You might not have to rent the satellite. But you might want it there. You might want to buy some of the data to sort of validate the concern, backing up about use of. Um, they're, they're using satellites to count um, like uh, swimming pools mm-hmm. and looking at um, uh, over a water, essentially water usage, residential water usage, and or looking at um, uh, these oil reservoirs, and they can they can look at the shadow and see okay. You know, what's the difference? We saw where you saw the height of where how much oil was in the thing in the tank this week. Where was that next week? You know, so again, you'd probably use a third party service for some of this. That's that's existing. You wouldn't go through all the trouble to stand that up. But, um, uh, you know, so so you might not have, you know, whether through financial planning or investing, you might not have a a, a pure personal use case to to. uh, um, to, to rent time on a satellite, you know. Um, but if I were an environmental yeah. engineer or something else or needed uh, data, I'd probably go to a third party. Yeah, and, and sometimes they're also, look, they're also using a mix of drones or like, uh, you know, un, unmanned aerial vehicles because sometimes you only use... Yeah, that seems more efficient to me. Yeah, than for certain things, you know, you, you use a, um, you know, a, a drone for certain things and sometimes you use a satellite because... You know, it depends on what the resolution that you you need and 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 the uh, frequency and velocity. So it kind of all depends on on, on those variables. Mm-hmm. Robert, I had a cu- couple of questions from your book in no specific order, if that's okay. Certainly. Um, I was curious about this number of um, satellites that are going to be launched. Uh, small satellites between 2018 and 2027. 20, mm. You were saying it was something like 7,000, and I was thinking I, like I've I've heard that that's still you know I've heard that that still that as of 2020 that's still um we're still on target. Yeah, um, for is this so, just really for like let me just help me out with this. Is this really just for 
image taking and you know analysis of no no i mean no. like i sorry i sorry this may seem like a dumb question but i have no idea no and I'll, 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 some of, when you get into the the, the 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 groups that need thousands that's for internet act you know date like uh communications um and they're not all internet like purely like um like broadband access there's a group that's working on um uh sending essentially so you can have like a self start kind of turning your cell phone into a satellite phone. Your, 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 your cell phone would be able to sell just text data up to the satellites and, and you're in difficult to reach places with just a conventional um, phone there. There's other satellite, there's another constellation they're working on to store. Um, to, it's, it's basically true cold store, kind of true off-world cold storage where you would only store um, government. There's some governments and specialized use of um, things like, passwords and not, not passwords it's it's like highly sensitive data where they don't even want they don't even really want it in like several different data centers they just kind of like want one backup and there's like one location um you've got um these weather weather startups that i alluded to earlier that are going to need multiple satellites they're not just like ones onesies or twosies um so it, it so it's it's kind of in the in the data and communications area that's where you're getting thousands the Earth observation, you're, uh, I haven't heard of anybody that's that's going to put up like you know a thousand, uh, you know, essentially their telescopes telescopes on a satellite. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, the military still is a big consumer of this data, and uh, and they want more from the commercial markets. They used to have you know their own dedicated assets, but they're also looking at there's this plans with um, is being able to tap into the commercial providers and how do they get. You know, potential extra resiliency in case of um, uh, in, you know in case of conflict, because um, you can basically shoot down a satellite from an airplane using a missile, or you could have your another satellite you know crash into another satellite. Essentially, any moving object in space could potentially be weaponized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if it has propulsion, if it has propulsion, not and I should not have, people don't know this, but not all satellites have propulsion, so. The larger ones typically do. Um, I, there was a really kind of cool thing um, that I appreciated in Chapter 7, which was, uh, I'll just quote it, um, much like internet infrastructure companies, uh, like internet infrastructure company Cisco, which established foundational capabilities that enabled companies like Google to create applications. And, you know, it goes on to say there will be a lot more that's coming out of this generation of space that leads to the Googles of space. I wondered if you could just help my imagination a little bit so that way 10 years from now or whatever it is, or 20 years from now, as this trend emerges, at least I'm able to see even one, just slightly. You know, we're building all this cool communication infrastructure. I, you know, I understand it could be a lot more valuable than I, under, than I understand today, but can you give me any idea of something that might rest on top of it that I won't be able to live without later? Yeah, okay, so... Um, so we talked a bit about the fiber, which is like an infrastructure play if they're building this up. So if we're, if the things like the, especially I'm particularly intrigued by the biomedical stuff. If we're successfully regenerating organs in, 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 in microgravity environments to where, um, you know, hearts, lungs, all these other things from your own body without, um, with, you know, decreasing rejection, I think that would be just a totally game changer um, for the way we live. We've got a vaccine that's already under development right now for salmonella. Salmonella is still a top um, diarrheal um, disease. Yeah, for globally. sure. So, okay, yeah, yeah. okay, maybe, I, I, maybe you or I right now are not going to probably die from salmonella, but many other parts of the world you know, yeah, they do. Yep, they do. And like, and like, their worth, their life is worth just as much as mine. And I think we absolutely should be pursuing these types of. Um, so I, you think I, it's I, more biomedical applications? Okay. I am. I, I'm. This is this is my particular bias, and it's actually an area I don't really have um, a background in, and I want to learn more. And I and, and I want to learn more, and I am educating myself more because I think we're going to um, we're going to have to um, improve humans for life. In, in space if we want to be there and in, in, in be, be there for long term and we want to be able to also improve life for humans on earth but the manufacturing then also of um i think materials is pretty pretty interesting it's still kind of like early 
but um, and we haven't seen it yet. But I can, uh, but I can just imagine, like you know, the um, it's not graph, like something like like a, a graph, which graphene is still the story is sort of like still kind of TBD on Earth, right? But if right. we had something along 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 those lines, where it's like completely completely dependent upon microgravity. Um, and it's very useful on earth. Um, things we're gonna, other things, I think we'll see some entertainment type of applications where people are going to come with some crazy gaming, VR controlling robotics, who knows that type of that, that interstitiary area between, you know, robotics, VR space, I think is very possible. Um, the lunar aspect, um, Maybe it's a little further out, but because um, that's going to be in kind of in space applications, like you know, they're going to be essentially mining the moon to have fuel for things. In right? Space. Isn't that isn't that what you were saying in the book that Jeff Bezos's first plan is to go to the south pole of the moon and you know be able to use water and yeah, all of that? yeah, yeah. And and then his he's he's kind of like he wants to focus on the moon, but his his big influence, like many other people, including myself, is um, Jerry O'Neill, who was a, a professor at, at Princeton who died, unfortunately, way too young. I think he died in the early 90s or late 80s. And he, he in around the in 69, he wanted to, he was trying to find other ways to, I guess, engage with his students. It's a contentious year. And, and since it was a lunar landing that year, the Apollo 11, he started asking, using, um, using lunar concepts to teach physics to his students. At Princeton, and one area that he 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 brought up, oh, he brought a question. He goes, it was just it was a great question. He goes, okay, we're landing on the moon, and if we're going to stay there, is the moon is the lunar surface the best place for people to live? And their their conclusion was actually no, it should be in free space. So Jerry O'Neill spent the rest of his life, and he wrote this excellent book called The High uh, High Frontier. Um, and there's going to be a documentary coming out um, soon about Jerry's life. Um, it's Jerry O'Neill. Um, was that we should be developed de in space for infrastructure for humans should be about in space. So think of like these rotating wheels so you could have 1G gravity and make it more similar to Earth rather than trying to adapt. Like the biosphere too down in Tucson. Yeah, but, it would, but you would have artificial gravity. And Jeff Bezos is, 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 is a, um, he's a, he's all about Jerry O'Neill. I mean, he was... He was, I think he first started reading about him in high school and it's definitely, I think, set the uh, trajectory for his entire life. Um, so, uh, so, the, so, you know, like the moon is kind of like a lot of training, it's a good training ground. But I think as we develop our manufacturing chops, you're, we're going to see, um, you know, big in-space infrastructure. Because like my vision is probably similar to like Bezos's would be like having billions of us living off world. I think we could basically rezone the earth so we're you know, there's a few billion of us living here in a more park-like setting light industrial and having heavy industrial and billions of us eventually living off earth and it says okay it sounds crazy but i think we actually you need, you need to put that idea out there to say look it is possible now we just need to start creating the future oh, around it let us just see if we can engineer you know i, I got a chance to go to biosphere too wow uh, probably a couple of dozen times oh, wow. um uh, it was, you know, it was interesting, um, you know, as, as the biospherians were going in and as they were coming out and, um, um, you know, reading about how they couldn't always survive inside if they needed a surgery and all of that. So mm -hmm. I think there's just going to be a lot more things to think through that we are going to have issues with before we can scale it out, right? Yeah. Followed that entire uh, lifespan of that. Yeah, we don't we don't really know if an embryo needs one. I mean, what happens if an, an embryo, a human embryo, one G is a requirement? One Earth gravity can't have a little more, can't have a little less. We don't know. We really don't know. Mm -hmm. To take it to full term, you know, um, there's there's tons of questions, and I sometimes hear, you know, I think sometimes some of some people uh, like the, uh, the the Elon Musk. Of the world. I don't know how many Elon Musk's of the world. There's only one, but um, think that there's somebody else working on it, you know, which is always a nice thing to think about. But it's like, you know, even on the way to Mars, if we all get, we're all going to get cancer or like when we land on Mars and have cancer, that's not going to be a really, you know, great party, landing party. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, Robert, where can people find you and your book? And can you tell us about the release date and all of that? 
Yeah, uh, they can find me um, at, uh, so I have sort of the book site is spaceisopenforbusiness.com slash book. Um, the intended launch is September 15th. And we're going to have a very special launch that I think is going to be quite different than other sort of um, product and book launches. Because as the book talks about the idea of this democratization of space and that it's easier access, I want to make that living and tangible proof. And I'm going to be including actually um, other uh, other products, sort of other, it's not necessarily other product launches, but I'm kind of bringing together other space-themed and space-related and some other really cool offerings as part of the book launch. Um, I also have a kind of a personal site, robertjacobson.com. There's a, I, it, it gets um, updated with lots of kind of space-related news, a lot of space kind of, if you want space news, I got it there. And then I have uh, an advisory group uh, that's called spaceadvisors.com that's there. And, and always love to connect with people. And I really appreciate Alan Clary for introducing to us in a little bit of trivia. We're both from, um, you know, Florida. We're from an area where that has a, is a annual holiday dedicated to pirates. And as a kid, they used to give us a day off for school for pirates. So I think I kind of got it in me. To basically become a space <laughs> to be a voyager, yeah. Or, you know, I think about some maybe benevolent pirates. You know, I, you know without... <laughs> no, no pillaging without permission. Yeah, excuse me. Can I, can I, can I please borrow your walk? Or you know, <laughs> Robert, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Neil, and thank you, Chris. I, it was a lot of fun today. Robert, it was really great to have you. And uh, space is open for business, folks. Really, a wonderful week. Hey, if you liked our episode today, please go ahead and visit your local podcast host and give us a five-star rating. We really would appreciate it. We'd love to bring you more guests. And uh, if you have any requests or suggestions, also feel free to leave that in the comments where you rate us. And we will talk to you soon. Until then, be well and be safe. <laughs>